Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Charles Payne. I'm Kat Timpf. I'm Stuart Varney. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, December 22nd, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. A Navy officer who was imprisoned in Japan has been sent back to the U.S., but now he's behind bars here. And Ridge Alconis's wife, Brittany, is frustrated. It's hard to put into words how it feels for him to be locked up by the very country he serves. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. New Fox polls came out this week. Border crossings broke a daily record. And a former president got kicked off the ballot in one state as more hope to follow suit. The interesting thing is people who love or hate the former president, wherever they are, there is a sense among many of them that this is not a decision that's going to survive. We speak with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Breen. And I'm Paul Batura. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. He's no longer in prison in Japan. But Navy Lieutenant Ridge Alconis is still not free. He's now behind bars in Los Angeles, still serving time over a 2021 car crash that left two Japanese citizens dead. But for how much longer will he be locked up? Uh, I want to be careful here. I don't get uh, too much into uh, what is still uh, a legal process. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, two congressmen, Nick LaLota and Mike Levin visited Elkonas in prison the other day, trying to help his frustrated family win his release. It's more than frustrating. Uh, it's a betrayal of our country. Brittany Elkonas is the lieutenant's wife. And I think the important thing to recognize here is that he was not released. He was transferred from a cage in Japan to a cage in the United States. So how did that work and why was he transferred? Uh, An active duty service member has never been designated as wrongfully detained. And someone being held by an allied nation and more specifically a nation with which we have a status of forces agreement has also never been designated as wrongfully detained. The government would only bring him back under the Council of Europe Treaty, which is a prisoner transfer which allows their case to be reevaluated in their home country. Now, does he, under that treaty, have to finish out the sentence that he was given in Japan? No, absolutely not. Um, first of all, with that treaty, the president retains all of his clemency, pardon, commutation power. Uh, that is one way Ridge could get home. The other way is by having his case reevaluated by the parole commission, and then he is resentenced in the United States. Now, we understand President Biden himself was involved in some sort of negotiation that led to him being transferred. Yes. What have you heard from the White House about the possibility of clemency, about commuting his sentence, about 
ending this ordeal for your husband? Um, so far, they have maintained that the president does not have the legal authority to do that. Um, but but wait, already... well, why? He's the commander in chief and he's the president, right? I have read the agreement. It expressly states that the president retains his power in no uncertain terms. Yeah, because obviously what happened in 2021 has been part of a relationship that's been troubled at times, right? Japan has had a troubled relationship with some U.S. military, with some events or incidents that have happened with our troops stationed there. Is that part of the problem? That's absolutely the problem. So actually, um, Japanese military attaches went to West Point. A cadet stood up and asked why Ridge was still in prison. The answer had nothing to do with Ridge. And instead, they, you know, they cited tensions with the U.S. because of incidents in Okinawa. And because of that, they have to, um, you know, punish Americans harshly. And so... So your you your husband is a victim of that, in your opinion? Yes, absolutely. Bring us back to what happened. You were on a family trip in Japan when mm -hmm. this crash occurred, right? He was going to be deployed for the rest of the year. It was late May 2021, and he asked each one of the kids what was one thing they wanted to do with Daddy before he had to leave. And so one of my children, they wanted to hike Mount Fuji. And then at the bottom of the mountain, there's this cute little dairy with ice cream and pizza that you can get made from the cows right there. And we had taken our daughters there when they were little and they had seen the pictures and she wanted to go back there. By the end of it, we were above 8,000 feet. Um, when everyone started getting hungry for lunch, we headed back to the car and Ridge started driving us down the mountain. And he was mid-conversation with my other daughter, when he lost consciousness, we were driving about 25 miles per hour. And oh. like, it's all very quick. Um, but the car moves over, runs into a parking lot. And unfortunately, two individuals uh, later on passed away from their injuries from that accident. Okay. But the accident did not wake him. My daughter trying to wake him did not wake him. What Japan a claim that he fell asleep. That's just, that's not true. All right. What happens when police arrive at the scene? So first of all, the, the military should have left immediately. Uh, we, we are told when we move to Japan that if there is a car accident, you call the military immediately. They come, uh, they help with translation and everything. So we called them they said they'd be on their way. Over an hour later, I called them again and said, where are you? Uh, they said, oh, we're just now leaving. And it's going to be about 45 minutes to, to an hour until we get there. So during that time, the police arrive, but they did not have the right to take him into custody. They did. Had the military gotten there when they should have, uh, he would not have been taken into custody. When they did take him into custody, he was held for 26 days. He was put in solitary confinement. He was interrogated for eight hours a day. They would ask him what, what happened. He would say, I don't know. I need to see a doctor. They said, well, you fell asleep. He said, that's not true. I need to see a doctor. 
They said, well, if you didn't fall asleep, then what was it? And once again, he would say, I don't know. I need to see a doctor. And so you believe or he believes or do doctors later believe that he had altitude sickness? Is that what happened? So acute mountain illness, and it has to do with a rapid ascent and descent. And there's not a whole lot of places in the world where you can go from sea level to over 8,000 feet and back down again in such a short amount of time. Um, but Mount Fuji is one of those places, and this is not an uncommon issue we've learned. Okay. And so then he has to go to trial? Yeah. So... Um, the family wanted him to be severely punished. Um, you know, we spoke with a lot of legal experts. I, I spoke with Jeff Sonnenberg, who is the head um, civilian attorney for U.S. Forces Japan. He said, in Japan, you're guilty. That's It's a hostage justice system, you know, 99.7% conviction rate. There's no innocent until proven guilty or even guilty until proven innocent. You're just guilty. You know, what everyone does is they get the suspended sentence. You plead guilty, you show remorse, you give the family whatever they want, you get the suspended sentence, and you move on with your life. Did you give so, the family what they asked for? We did. They asked for $1.65 million. We gave it to them. How did you they get also, that? Did you you had to did you raise that money? So I insurance paid about seven hundred of that. We did a private GoFundMe, just family, friends. Um, miraculously, we were able to raise, um, over $500,000 in just a little over a week. Uh, so between that That's amazing, between really. savings, um, so you had to spend your life savings. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but it, the, the Ridge was always concerned about two things. One, the family deserves to be taken care of. His other ask was to be able to be a husband and father again. And so those were the two things he wanted. And paying the amount they asked for satisfied that requirement. And as we were told by the military, was really the only hope that he would get a suspended sentence. In the end, though, that's not what happened. Nope. He was given uh, three years. But at he least now that's over and he's in the United States again. So how do you know how long he'll have to spend in prison here? Um, I don't know how long. I don't know how long. He could have been home already if there was a desire for it to be finished. Uh, however, we we have not seen any movement at all. And when did I see him? I saw him on Tuesday um, and, you know, he was asking, he's like, did I make a mistake? He said, I, I thought by agreeing to come back to the U.S. that I would be free of Japan's influence. And he's like, that's clearly not the case. But at least, uh, at least you got to see him and at least he got to see the kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. He got to hug his kids for the first time in a year and a half. Um, so that's worth it, right? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's it's hard to put into words how it feels for him to be locked up by the very country he serves. And he hasn't committed a crime. 
And the reason things were allowed to happen the way they did is because the status of forces agreement that should pr not protect our service members from, you know, prosecution when there's actual wrongdoing, but it should guarantee our service members legal rights. Uh, it failed him. So now you just hope that somehow before Christmas, somebody makes a decision, maybe the president, and it finally ends and he comes home. Yes. Yes, this is absolutely absurd. You know, we Ridge has been, <laughs> he's been bled by Japan, but the U.S., they've been the ones holding him down. Um, and I think that tells you everything you need to know. And I think it tells you everything you need to know about, about what's happening today, is that this has nothing to do with Ridge. It has nothing to do with his legal rights. Um, it just has to do with, with the alliance and and appeasing Japan. And apparently we're terrified of them. That That's the only thing I can think of because none of this makes any sense. But you get to talk to him every day now, right? Uh, I do because he gets 10-minute phone calls. And so we make use of that 10 minutes. Um, you know, it's great to just hear his voice. It's great to be able to say good morning, it's you know, or good night. Um, but it's it's hard to put into words the feelings of of betrayal. Um, you know, we see him one day a week. It requires us to drive to L.A. in rush hour. And it's, you know, a good four hours of driving to see him. Hopefully that ends relatively soon maybe in the coming days and and we wish you well and uh, and the best and and hope for his return home Brittany Alconis whose husband Lieutenant Ridge Alconis is now jailed in the United States after being transferred from Japan thank you for joining us and telling your story and and we hope to talk to you again in the near future under better circumstances me too thank you so much Merry Christmas Merry Christmas I'm Dana Perino. This week on Perino on Politics, while early voting states will play a key role in determining which candidate will receive their party's nomination, swing states are critical for determining who will win the election. This week, I'm joined by Philadelphia-based radio host and former GOP strategist Rich Zioli for a look at what issues matter most to voters there. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. This is Paul Baturo with your Fox News commentary. Coming up... This week, Colorado's Supreme Court ruled former President Trump could not be on the primary ballot, citing Section 3 of the Constitution's 14th Amendment, as well as a district court's ruling that found the former president had engaged in insurrection on January 6th. When asked Wednesday if he agreed with the court's ruling, President Biden said he couldn't comment on court cases. But when asked if he thought Trump was an insurrectionist, the president walked over to the cameras and said, He certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. But he said whether the 14th Amendment applies here, we'll let the courts decide. The former president said Tuesday evening at a rally in Waterloo, Iowa, after the ruling. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means necessary. They are willing to violate the U.S. constitutions at levels never seen before in order to win this election. Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. It's a threat. 
They're weaponizing law enforcement for high-level election interference because we're beating them so badly in the polls. But on social media, he was more pointed, saying the president should drop all the fake political indictments against him, both criminal and civil. He used the phrase banana republic and said this is election interference. The president's Republican primary opponents, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, were among the many expressing concern over this ruling. There's not been any trial or any guilty finding. They're just saying this from the Colorado Supreme Court. So that's a very dangerous precedent to say that uh, a partisan court can just take somebody off the ballot. But there are efforts underway in other states to remove Trump's name from the ballot. California's lieutenant governor wants the secretary of state to use Colorado's ruling as a basis to kick Trump off the ballot there. It basically throws everything to the U.S. Supreme Court. And we're waiting on the Trump team. Uh, We expect they will immediately, they have said imminently, file something with the Supreme Court to challenge this Colorado decision. Shannon Bream is the host of Fox News Sunday. The interesting thing is people who love or hate the former president, wherever they are, there is a sense among many of them that this is not a decision that's going to survive, whether they want him to repeat mm-hmm. as president or don't think he should ever repeat as president. They agree that there's some problems with the decision itself. So we'll wait and see how quickly the Supreme Court, if it does decide to get involved. My educated guess is that they will and that they will tell the Colorado Supreme Court this doesn't pass muster when it comes to due process and those kinds of things. But the Supreme Court hates getting drawn into these electoral or political situations. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be unavoidable on so many different fronts this time around. But talk to us a little bit about the legal questions that are being asked shaping this debate, because as a non-lawyer, the Mm -hmm. one I hear is, hey, Trump was not convicted of anything, right? He wasn't convicted of insurrection. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question then is, do you have to be convicted in order for this section of the 14th Amendment to apply in keeping anybody off the ballot? And you got to think that's going to be one of the big questions for the Supreme Court, because like you said, he wasn't convicted. He hasn't even been charged with insurrection. So do you kick someone off the ballot using this language from the 14th Amendment, which talks about somebody who's been involved in insurrection when they've not been charged or convicted of insurrection? I think that's going to be one of the major flaws and problems with this uh, Colorado decision, um, because that court essentially through an expedited process, which will be another one of the objections to it, is that there wasn't a full vetting a chance for the former president to make his case and have real due process uh, in this. But yeah, I think that's got to be at the heart of the question. Can you kick someone off the ballot for something they've not even been charged with? Republicans in Colorado say, don't worry, Vivek, you don't you don't have to bail (laughs) on the primary. We're going to switch to a caucus. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's Colorado used to do caucuses before they switched to the primary system. I is I guess that's the workaround. Well, and here's the thing is that I I have not read every syllable of the 100 page plus decision from Colorado, but in my reading of it, what they say is he can't be on the primary ballot. Right. Now, I would assume that if he wins and he ends up on the general, they're going to try to make the same case that he, mm-hmm. for the same reasons they kicked him off the primary, can't be on the general. But they didn't say that that I saw in this opinion. Now, I think that this decision probably will be taken up by the Supreme Court and decided before we get to a general election. So that may move that as well. But what this said was, yeah, you can't be on the primary ballot. But if, you have the, if the Colorado GOP says, great, we don't do ballots. And by the way, his name is on the ballot for now. It, we're we're yeah. just going to do a caucus and we're going to let people vote. And, and, you know, you could always I could see people mounting a write in situation for him. I mean, there yeah. are all kinds of ways around this for people who are really supportive of President Trump in Colorado.
And there's so many other states that are talking about doing this. I imagine right. the Supreme Court, you know, that's another motivating factor. Right. So, Shannon, let's talk about the, the latest Fox business polling out of Iowa. Trump is still at the top, but even more so than before. He passed the 50% mm-hmm. threshold, right? He's at 52%. And dovetailing with that finding is when asked what is extremely important as far as characteristics, 78% said a strong leader, 77% mm-hmm. said someone who's mentally able and has stamina. I know we're talking about the Republican voters here, but those those sound like the very digs we hear against President Biden. Mm-hmm. They are, and we see that showing up not only for Republican voters, of course, are not going to be President Biden's number one fans, but <laughs> even within his own party, we do see those same concerns. People saying, I want there to be a different candidate. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he's strong enough mentally or physically. I mean, that's from his own party. And by contrast, when you look at President Trump, who's not you know, largely different in age from President Biden, people feel differently about him, that he has different energy and stamina and mental ability and acuity. Um, and that's something that he likes to, you know, uh, bring up in every campaign stop that he does and, you know, mimicking the current president and just trying to demonstrate that he has those things that people are worried about, the mental acuity, the physical, the ability to take on these fights in a different way. And I do think the fight thing is very central to President Trump because People out there who say, um, I feel run over, they look at things like DOJ, FBI, the court system, and feel like I don't trust it, but I feel like this guy is going to fight for me. Maybe I don't like all of the ways that he does it, and I don't like his demeanor and his tweets, exes, whatever we're calling them now, but <laughs> this guy is a fighter, and that's what I want to see in there. I, I think, too, that's when he shows up to the UFC fights and different things like that. Like These <laughs> are people that are looking for somebody to go into battle for them. And that's how the GOP primary voters and caucus goers feel about him. You know, politically, when you hear people talk about this path for second place, right, this fight between um, Governor DeSantis and Nikki Haley, I, what, I mean, one woman for, for Haley, she was an organizer in New Hampshire, told me that plenty of people are open to someone else who put Trump as their first choice. So that's that's their kind of what they're banking on, right, is that if something happens and, you, you know, you can't go with Trump, you know, that, that you're open to somebody else. But this Fox Business poll found in Iowa, far more people are open to someone else when Nikki Haley is their first choice mm-hmm. and much less so when Trump is. Um, it, it, it kind of makes you think about, like, what what does second place mean here in, in this context? Yeah, that, it's such a good point, because the polling is very interesting when you say, OK, Trump voters, who's your second choice? DeSantis voters who are second and Haley and go through the list. It's interesting to see that um, so many of the Trump voters are aligned with a DeSantis, that Mm -hmm. they feel like those two are for them could be, you know, very much the same choice. They do see Haley differently. And it's interesting because the polling head to head, like all of our recent Fox polling and elsewhere shows that Haley does the best against President Biden. It seems that she pulls over people from the Democratic side where there are many within the GOP who are skeptical of her that, you know, they'll use the label rhino or establishment. They don't feel like she's hardcore GOP enough for them. But in a general, she would probably pull from some former Biden voters who say like, yeah, I think she's could be an alternative for me. So it helps her in the general. It hurts her a little bit with the um, primary uh, GOP voters. But You know, DeSantis team continues to say that he's going to pull off some kind of surprise in Iowa, kind Mm. of all eggs in the basket for him. He's been to all 99 counties. They say on the ground, it's a different feel for them. He's got the endorsements of, you know, big names there in Iowa, like the governor, like Steve Vanderplatz. And really, he's got to deliver in Iowa either 
coming within striking distance of Trump or pulling off some unforeseen upset to then have momentum going into New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley is polling at numbers that we have not seen previously. Like she's in double digits. She is really making headway. She's got the, you know, the governor there's endorsement and other people um, that it's starting to look like a little bit of a headache for the Trump team in New Hampshire. Mm, we'll see. Okay, Shannon, the B story this week that was really an A, um, it was just lurking there, was Bill Malusion's reporting at the border, right? 12,600 oh people in one day. And he was talking to people. I mean, I've been to the border many times. Mm-hmm. It's mostly people from Northern Triangle countries, Mexico, right? These are people now from all over. It's Senegal, India, China. Does this finally mean Democrats are going to come back from winter break, House Democrats, and along with Senate Democrats, too, even though some of them are still in Washington. And there's going to be some agreement now on some new level of border security because that's been tied to the funding passing for Israel and Ukraine. Is what we're seeing now at the border finally going to tip lawmakers over to pass something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even more importantly, it's pushing the president because his Mm. poll numbers are completely cratered on this issue of border security and immigration. So for him, there's the political pressure, too, of people can see with their own eyes, hear with their own ears, and Democrats and Republicans alike admit it's a mess, but because the polling is so bad and even Democrats are now pushing the White House like, dude, this is a bad situation. <laughs> we need to take some kind of ownership in that. Let's get something done and then you can get credit for doing something on the border. So the White House seems much more open to a serious compromise on asylum policies and all these other things that they said, oh, Trump was a brutal dictator. We would never do any of this stuff. You know, some of that is coming back under a Biden light sort of repackaging. And it's why the progressive left is so angry at him and saying, Mm. no way, don't cave on the stuff you're turning into Trump or some of the policies you said you'd never do. But I think that anybody, once they become president, realizes just the reality, how tough it is in dealing with some of these really intractable things like the border. And you got to do things that maybe you campaigned against ever doing. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. I think that's going to be the the January story as we reach, what is it, January 19th? They need to pass uh, another funding Mm. measure. Yeah, it's not just Ukraine and Israel and the border and Taiwan and humanitarian aid into Gaza. It is all of our funding bills to keep our government running. That runs out in two tranches in January and February. So I hope all of our lawmakers enjoy their breaks. Yeah, January is going to be Because they got a lot to do when they get back. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Finally, Shannon, it's our last Shannon podcast, I think, of the year. Um, Right. Any predictions for the coming year or did anything catch you off guard in particular or surprise you about the past year? You know, um, I knew that President Trump would probably face some legal trouble. I don't think I I got just how many criminal counts he was going to be facing (laughs) and how much like 700 years behind bars if he ever gets convicted on any of this stuff. He is so smart in reading the pulse of people. And I remember early in the year before that first state indictment in New York, he was asked at CPAC by somebody who said, if you get indicted, will you drop out of the race? And he was like, heck no, I'm paraphrasing. But basically, (laughs) it's actually probably going to help my poll numbers if I get indicted. And how prescient he was because the more trouble he has legally, the better he does in polls and fundraising and has just run away with it. And I think he knew in a way that maybe the rest of us didn't understand that the worse things got for him legally, the better they they would be for him politically. So there you go. Now, what it means in 24, we'll all buckle up and stand by to find out. Oh, goodness. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, for the past year. Thanks, Jessica. And Happy New Year. 
And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Delaware County, Pennsylvania has a newly certified lifeguard thanks to a close call last year. Jim McBride nearly died in a YMCA hot tub, and if it hadn't been for two lifeguards and an automatic external defibrillator, there might have been a different result. He had a heart attack, was revived, then rushed to a hospital where he had a double bypass. After he recovered from heart surgery, Jim went back to the pool, except this time he's the one saving lives, having been certified as a lifeguard. He's recently retired from the TSA and has a new job working at the YMCA with the same lifeguards that saved him. Jim says he's living proof of how important CPR training and AEDs in all public places are and that he just wants to tell his story so he can help more people. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. I'm Emily Campagno, host of the Fox True Crime Podcast. In 2003, elementary school vice principal Vincent Brothers murdered his wife, mother-in-law, and his three young children. I spoke to retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Mark Safrick about his work on the case and why this crime scene was so unique. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Patera. What's on your mind? It's one of the great ironies of life that you sometimes have to look a while for Christmas decorations that feature the whole reason for the season. I'm talking about displays that feature the baby Jesus, whose birthday the world is preparing to celebrate in just a matter of a few days. Look anywhere and everywhere and you'll see plenty of twinkling lights on trees and houses and Santa Claus on his sleigh. But Jesus in the manger? Not so much. Maybe it's because while scripture is unequivocal that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it's not clear exactly where and in what structure. The gospel writer Luke tells us there was no room in the inn and that Jesus was placed in a manger. But whether the animal feeding trough was in a cave, a barn, or a modified house setting is unknown. Perhaps that's why it took so many years for a nativity scene to emerge and become part of the Christmas celebration. Francis of Assisi is credited with setting up the first known reenactment inside a cave in Italy. It was Christmas Eve of 1223, exactly 800 years ago. It featured live animals and it created quite a buzz, so much so that the tradition stuck and spread, eventually making its way around the world. Now, as a janitor at our church back in high school, I had the privilege of helping my boss build and decorate the life-size front lawn stable each December. We'd lug the brown wooden panels up from the basement, lay in straw, and staple evergreen boughs to the roof. We always affixed a blue light inside. Now, all the figurines were positioned weeks before Christmas, but our pastor didn't allow us to lay the baby Jesus in the creche until twilight on December 24th. It was a tradition I enjoyed. Now, one frigidly cold year, I found myself wrapping up the small clay figurine of the baby Jesus in burlap and trudging through the snow out onto the front lawn of the church. The area was awash in the glow of the white lights and the evergreen trees that surrounded it. Now, ducking inside the dry stable and protected from the howling wind, the air suddenly grew quiet. I could hear the crunch of the straw under my feet. I gently placed Jesus in the wooden trough. Now, I didn't hear voices or angels singing, but my heart felt full at the moment. 
You know, antagonists of religious freedom like to challenge the legality of crush displays on government property. Vandals have also been known to steal and desecrate others. But despite cultural battles, creches, like Christmas itself, carry on. And for that reason, I quietly cheer. That's because from the White House to my house and in millions of homes the world over, major scenes remind us that despite all the commercial trappings of twinkling lights, music, gifts, and food, a helpless and innocent baby remains, as always, the true star of the Christmas story. Now, whether the infant Jesus stayed in a cave or a barn isn't important. The simplicity and the poverty of the setting is the whole point. That God chose to send his son into such circumstances is endlessly instructive. Even the fact that the world didn't make room for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus is a cold but candid reminder that we shouldn't be shocked when culture ignores him today. From Focus on the Family, Merry Christmas. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.